0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, starting this weekend, unvaccinated individuals will not be allowed in long-term care homes. Is this going to give some incentive to finally get the jab? And we also heard the federal government's 2021 fiscal update yesterday. What were the most important things announced? Well, we'll discuss that. And the Canadian government is scrambling to respond to the new dominant Omicron variant, as rumors in Ottawa are suggesting that there could be tighter border and travel restrictions on the way. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about long-term care facilities and the, uh, the plans that are going in place there. Ontario is enhancing measures to protect vulnerable residents in long-term care facilities from COVID-19 and the new variant. And there have been some restrictions there too. Global's Brianna Carnegie has some details.
1: Starting this weekend, unvaccinated individuals will not be allowed in long-term care homes. They are only allowed outdoor visits of up to four people. Family, friends and caregivers who do have their shots will be allowed inside, two people at a time, as long as they have a negative COVID test. Staff and volunteers will also face increased testing of two times a week. And there's a new ban on residents leaving for overnight visits. With uncertainty around the Omicron variant, Ontario's top doctor Kieran Moore is encouraging everyone who is eligible to get their third dose of a vaccine.
0: Although our
2: vaccines appear to be less effective against transmission of Omicron,
1: evidence is showing us that they still likely provide strong protection against severe
2: illness, especially with a booster dose. Brianna Carnegie, Global News.
0: So we're going to piece this up and talk about this in individual aspects on how it's going to impact you, me, and everyone else. But let's start with the long-term care facility situation. And to analyze government policy on that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is the co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards and a professor at Ontario Tech. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: I always love talking to you. Thanks for having me.
0: Let me ask you, so right, right off the bat, when I was looking at these this morning, the first thing I thought is, okay, now uh, nobody who's <laughs> unvaccinated is going to be allowed to to uh, enter one of these facilities. So in other words, previous to this, uh, oh, yeah. if you were unvaccinated, you were allowed to go in, inside one of these facilities. Isn't that playing with fire?
1: It, I mean, that's literally the headline for this entire government response to long-term care. So it's are <laughs> playing with fire since 2020. Like This is what's yeah. been happening. And these measures... I, I mean, they, do, they don't They do go anywhere near far enough. I mean, you know, where do I even begin? They're gonna start, the, I think the most problematic aspect is that they're only gonna start testing staff, students, and volunteers two times a week, two times a week. Do you know how many, once Omicron gets in there, forget it. If you're only testing two times a week, that's it. We're done at that point. You know, it's not gonna catch it soon enough. We need daily testing. Um, the fact that they're, you know, still allowing the unvaccinated people until uh, February 21st to get two doses. So they're still allowed in <laughs> until February 21st. So they don't, you know, really hit that point home in their media little blitz yesterday. They, they, you know, only lead with the, oh, no unvaccinated people in anymore. Well, that's not quite true, right? So- well, this, And this is what I, th- I find frustrating day.
0: about this. And, and yep. but see, if there's somebody who's not vaccinated- I know what the government's response is going to be. They're going to say, well, we have to give them you know, until February 21st to get fully vaccinated. I'd be having a conversation and say, what's what's the holdup? Why haven't you done this yet? Do you want to work yes. in this facility? These are the rules. Yes. They don't seem to want to say that.
1: Well, listen, when they first announced this in October, and remember, and I've been here talking with you about this for a while, I had been fighting for them to mandate vaccinations and staff for God knows how long. But when they finally mm-hmm. announced it October 1st, one of the first things I pointed out and, and, you know, when I did my little media tour, so to speak, was that, you know, visitors were left out of the mandate, which was just a curious gap. And, and you know, they justified it with saying, well, we don't want to restrict after what we did to them in the first couple waves, we don't want to further isolate them from their families. But like <laughs> while acknowledging that it's still clearly a risk, luckily most of the infections up to this point were unfortunately staff driven. A lot of the essential caregivers that we know of at least are indeed vaccinated, but I don't even know if honestly the province is collecting the information on how many of them are vaccinated and how many aren't because we're not being provided that, at least that I know of. Um, so it has been a gap. So now we have another gap until February, right? And, and we don't know how big this window of risk is, how many unvaccinated you know, essential caregivers are, are actually in these homes right now, but you know, just one of them in there. And they say they're going to, you know, start increasing masking and things like that. But, you know, when you're in the room, you you know, who knows what's going on in the room if the family member takes off their mask or gets too close to the resident. And then it just, you know, how it spreads in these situations. So it is a risk. We're all uh, pretty nervous about it. But I think for me, what the most damning part of, of this announcement yesterday was that there is nothing. Nothing discussed in terms of what are we going to do, because this is the really pressing fear right now. We hope and we pray that the, th- the three boosters that the majority of the residents have right now, 86 percent of the residents have their booster. I don't know what happened to the other 14, but at least 86 percent. But we don't know what happens. So we're hoping that it's going to prevent any more serious illness if they indeed get Omicron into these homes to the residents. But what happens when the staff gets sick? They're going to have to stay home and isolate. And if this is as contagious as we're saying it is, like more contagious than all the other strains combined, we're looking at uh, uh, the most deadly potential staffing collapse that we've ever seen so far in a sector that is already rocked with staffing collapses that are well known about that have not been rectified to date. So what is going to happen when all of these workers suddenly have to stay home? who's going to care for the residents there was no discussion about that yesterday there is no plan that i see to prepare for surge staffing and furthermore to really amp up the the you know safety of our frontline staff only 32% of the frontline staff have their booster as of right now 32% this is a three-dose vaccine, particularly in the case of Omicron. So why are we not sending mobile clinics to these homes ASAP like they did in previous waves and the first round of vaccination and getting these workers their boosters to help reduce the likelihood that they will get Omicron in the first place? We should be doing everything right now to protect the staffing workforce in place. And I'm not seeing any of that. And that is a huge problem. There's other problems too, but those are really two of the biggest ones.
0: Well, as to how contagious this really is, I think we got a sense of that from from Dr. Moore yesterday. Uh, Four to five times more people are getting infected by this than than any of the previous ones. which I think underscores the point you just mentioned here. If yeah. it gets into one of these facilities, uh, it's going to spread like wildfire. Forgive me for the, yeah. the you know, the fire m- metaphors all the time, but we've seen this happen. I, I, yeah. I'm concerned at this stage right now, doctor, that that we're following uh, the same kind of protocol that we did last no. year. Yeah, we've got vaccines now, but, you know, I, I'd be testing everybody that walked in and out of one of those facilities 100%. on a daily basis, not a couple of 100%. times a week.
1: And, you know, you know, when government failure when government failure i didn't mean to say that but hey it works when government policy falls short is when individual homes are doing above and beyond what the government is asking them to do so i've had families you know reach out to me saying well our home is indeed testing every day because we know how dangerous this is right now yet the government is saying ah you know just do it twice a week and you know you're fine but that's when you know how glaring of a problem it is when even the homes are ignoring the government policy and doing more and not all of them are doing it, maybe because they don't have access to as many rapid tests. Because I know funding has been an issue, and I've heard from some of the providers, particularly nonprofit providers, who are having you know funding. We've all they, the whole sector is underfunded, but you know, obviously, the for, for profits have some deeper pockets. If they want to buy some more rapid tests, they can do that. A lot of the nonprofit homes can't do that. So, do they have the access to as many rapid tests as they need to do that? Is the government actually helping providing more emergency funding so that they can buy those resources? Forget the fact. How about this, that N95 use is not even required in long-term care homes. Staff have to ask for it if they actually want to. Why are we not mandating N95 use, especially right now, given how transmissible this is, is mind-boggling to me. And then think about it again. With no paid sick leave, if we have workers that somehow fall through the cracks, the rapid testing cracks, and it gets in there, workers are gonna go to work sick. It happened in previous waves. We know that because we don't have paid sick leave. And a lot of these workers are on temporary precarious, you know, agency style employment contracts where they don't have the, the, you know, capacity to stay at home and get paid and pay their bills at the same time. So then they go to work sick and we're opening this window up again. We've learned nothing from previous waves. And right now, unfortunately, with this new, you know, level of transmissibility, we're posed for the probably the most disastrous staffing collapse we've, we've seen yet. And, and this is the fear now. We're all on pins and needles waiting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks.
0: Well, and especially because I know we're going to talk about the travel aspect of this a little bit later on in the program. Uh, but some of these things, that, like you say, they, they just don't seem to go far enough. No. Uh, daytime off-site visits are still going to be allowed for fully vaccinated residents only. They're still going to be exposed to it. Uh, you know, yeah, if there's it, somebody well. out there who's <laughs> unvaccinated, they're going to visit somebody's house. They're going to bring it back in. <laughs>
1: Well, the hilarious part, too, is that they say in one, one line, you know, no overnight visits. And if you want an overnight, you have to discharge the resident. which Come on, no one will do that because then you don't have your place secured if you want to go back.
0: Exactly. But
3: then,
1: but then they say, oh, but you can go away for the day. No problem. Day visit. So what's the difference? Like, it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to leave and go somewhere where you could potentially be contaminated. And I've heard stories from families who have told me that, you know, like last Christmas, for example, I've heard where families took the resident out to come home and spend the day at christmas at their homes and unfortunately they contracted and some residents died that way so it happens this is not you know there is risk so if you're going to allow risk for for a daytime visit but then not at night it just doesn't there's no you know there's no it doesn't make sense right the risk is still there and then if you're not rapid testing daily then what, what's the point of this you're you're, you're going to miss it it's going to get in and then now we all have to sit here and wonder what's going to happen when it starts invading the homes yet again it's just a matter of time.
0: Well, yeah, and and as, as you've talked about it, mean, as has been the case in the past, a, a lot of these "quote unquote" restrictions and new rules are, are a day late and a dollar short when it comes to mm-hmm. to, to, to causing this thing to. Stop and and stop yeah. the spread of these sorts of things. Uh, yeah. My concern at this stage is that we're heading into the Christmas season and we're going to see a spike. We already know that. Oh uh, yeah. All the experts are telling us that, but what they're not. They're not saying, okay, you know what? We're going to nip this in the bud. We're going to really bring the hammer down on this, and it's going to yeah. sound a little restrictive for a couple of weeks, but it's it's what we need to do. They're not doing yeah. that. They're saying, so, oh yeah, all you know that stuff we should have done three months ago. Yeah, we're going to we're going to start using some of that stuff now. We know that We have warehouses full of testing kits. Why aren't we using them?
1: Oh, it's mind-boggling. And, you know, and I've said this too, that that long-term care doesn't exist in a bubble, right? So we, you can throw these, whatever they call enhanced measures, which really aren't. Um, you can add those into long-term care. But remember, again, if the workers work in the community and live in the community. Right. So and so do the family members. So you can't have one without the other. It's if if you have this wildfire ripping through the community, of course, it's going to get into long term care. That's how it works. So if you don't do things like limit occupancy capacities, you know, release the the rats, so to speak, the hashtag, release the rapid test, increase the boosters to 18 plus like immediately try to get as many people you know, immune from contracting this is possible right now, because we know that having three doses is better than two in this context, then, I mean, it's all for naught, right? And I think what really struck me yesterday when I was watching the, uh, Dr. Moore's press conference so he had one yesterday three o'clock which was supposed Mm -hmm. to be about long-term care yet somehow all the questions ended up being literally no Q&A questions were about long-term care it was all about other you know sectors and and, but what something really stood out to me was when a a reporter asked him well what happens if because we have these new rules in certain jurisdictions where you know you have to isolate, um, even if you're just like a second contact. I don't remember the either. I can't remember the specifics, but you, it's, the isolation rules are more strict now because of certain areas that are on fire, so to speak. Right. So mm-hmm. we're having a situation where potentially a lot of uh, essential workers are going to have to isolate for long periods of time. Um, And they said, well, what are we going to do about staffing collapses in these essential workforces? And they weren't even necessarily talking about long-term care because they had alluded to like, you know, education, police, things like that. And he said, and what he said, which struck me was, well, you know, at that point, you know, we'll we'll consider daily rapid testing, you know, to avoid these collapses. Meanwhile, we're at a press conference about long-term care while ignoring the fact you're not doing that for long-term care out of presser about long-term care when we know the sector is rocked with staffing shortages as is was mind-blowing to me to see that conversation go down and, and nobody realized the hypocrisy of that and nobody even realized that it's not happening in long-term care
0: but I it's just, typical care. though and it follows a pattern that you and i've been talking about for well almost two years now really yeah. is that uh, the government's messaging here seems to be we're going to wait until it becomes a crisis then we're going to really bring the, you I, know to bear what we need to do that, that's that's too late I mean always we, reactive. In, 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 yes instead of proactive they're being reactive to everything and you know the numbers aren't bad enough yet for us to do that well do you want them to get bad is that what you're saying to justify yeah. these kind of measures
1: It's so upsetting. This is literally the antithesis of the precautionary principle. The entire pandemic, the antithesis of doing things to prevent the kinds of situations we end up finding ourselves in wave after wave after wave. It's all been well predicted. All of the modelers have said this is coming, but they have never, with the sense of urgency that we have seen now, the tsunami, we've never heard of the, the tsunami hitting us like we have in previous waves. I mean, this is a new level of of transmissibility that we've never seen before. And and the concern that is really hitting home now is definitely unique, especially going into this time of season, right? That this this strain could not have found a more dangerous time, (laughs) Mm -hmm. much more intelligent than a lot of people in this government to actually, you know, doing mass destruction. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the, you know, epidemiologists said, like, if you don't get Omicron in the next, like, you know, Four to six weeks. I mean, you're you're pretty much either living like a hermit or you're just you went to a deserted island. Like it's pretty much it's going to happen based on the lack of more proactive measures. And and even now at this point, me. You know the the threat is really, in you know, limiting the staffing shortages because what happens if all again the long term care workers get sick and the hospital workers get sick? Who's going to care for all the, the the patients and the residents? The, I. And there's no conversation right now about that very real threat that is before us. And, and it's an immediate threat. I mean, this is going to be the next few weeks and Christmas is just going to make it worse. So there's no question about it. So and then we don't, you know, we hear, well, you know, maybe if I were you, if I were vulnerable, don't have parties, but everyone else. Okay. So, you know you watch those press conferences and you just leave feeling a sense of dread like you're on your own and that's what i tend to hear you're on your own figure it out we will step in literally at eleventh hour when the house is on fire with a couple of fire extinguishers time and time again it's exhausting it's i think yeah, we're all I, exhausted I
0: just, yeah and we can see it coming down the road again uh doctor i got to leave it there for now um Hopefully we can talk about some better news, but I'm, I'm skeptical uh, just based on what we've heard. Uh, thank you so much for the uh, the great work that you're doing. We'll talk again soon. Sounds
1: good. Stay safe, friend.
0: You betcha. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos uh, with her read on the government's uh, new proposals for long-term care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, yesterday, uh, Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland uh, delivered the government's fiscal update. And uh, as you might have expected, there's a a lot of political spin going on here, and uh, it was not well received, shall we say, by the opposition parties. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has uh, panned the government's uh, fiscal update, uh, says the Trudeau government's deficit is expected to be about $10 billion less than was originally forecast. Well, there's a story behind that, too. Uh, That includes plans, by the way, to spend, they say, $4.5 million to combat uh, omicron variant of covid-19 but uh, the ndp leader says that's not really going far enough so the lack of urgency and the lack of a response to deal with what people are dealing with right now to to respond
3: to their worries is why this fiscal update is is really a failure uh, particularly when we said the the pandemic continues we need supports for people to be there
0: and with omicron that's really showing sadly that there might be additional supports needed On the other hand, of course, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, uh, suggesting that, uh, well, they've done nothing to try to do anything about inflation or any of the other things that are causing grief to you, me, on an everyday basis. So where are we right now, and and is there a path forward? Uh, Let's talk about that, and uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Franco Terrazano, who is the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Franco, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Hey, good morning, and thanks for having me
0: on. We've uh, heard from the politicians on this. What was your read as you were listening to uh, Minister Freeland yesterday?
2: Well, uh, I mean, we're seeing a huge deficit this year again. It's going to be coming in just under $145 billion. That's the deficit. The debt is is an eye-watering $1.2 trillion dollars. By the end of this year, so we knew we were going to have a, a big deficit. We knew that the government is up to its eyeballs in debt. But what really caught us off guard is that somehow Finance Minister Christia Freeland is going over budget this year with her spending. Um, and remember, <laughs> she's the one who sets the budget. She's the boss when it comes to the to the federal gov- government's finances. But even she is going over budget with her own spending.
0: To what end? I mean, I, I we understand that there's going to be money for COVID relief, and and especially now with the new variant, we get that, that, what's happening here. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, where's the money going to be directed, and how effective is it going to be?
2: Yeah, I mean, th- th- those are great questions. And remember, so when when a country, when a government, when a household, a family, when they're dealing with a, a certain issue that comes up, obviously like the pandemic has had, um, you, you, you direct money to that area but you're supposed to find savings in other areas. And we just haven't seen the federal government do that. We've seen the federal government have an unprecedented level of spending before the pandemic. In fact, in 2018, the Trudeau government was spending all-time highs, even adjusted for inflation and population growth. Uh, So we had this massive amount of spending going into the pandemic. We were already running big deficits then. And instead of actually redirecting funds from other areas of the budget, all we've seen this government do is just borrow more borrow more money, essentially, for everything.
0: Well, and therein lies part of the frustration. And and I guess part of the – I was going to say the rationale behind this is, is they, they're not going to have as big a deficit as they thought. But, but that's that's not their doing. I mean, you and I know the math yeah. on this. Uh, they're making more money because of inflation. I mean, every time I go to the – you know, to pill up my gas tank – Uh, I'm paying more tax, and that's more tax than they had anticipated because they didn't know an inflation rate was going to be this high nor the price of gas was going to be this high, but it is, and that's money that's flowing into the federal coffers. But the attitude there seems to be, hey, we got more money. Let's go spend it now. Uh, We're not quite sure on what yet, how effective it's going to be, but we're going to spend it. That's that's exactly right,
2: and and remember the deficit is only marginally going down. It's still, like I said, one hundred and forty-five billion dollars, which is which is absolutely eye-watering, and and it's not because the government is operating it more efficiently. I mean, the exact opposite is the case. We're seeing a finance minister, Kristia Freeling, go over budget uh, from what she laid down in April, And, and I mean, inflation might be the key economic issue facing Canadian families right now. And what we're very worried about is that all of this spending that we've seen in this fiscal update is really pouring more fuel onto the inflation fire. Uh, We have seen the government prop up consumer demand. Uh, We've seen the government's borrowing directly relate to this inflation because what has the Bank of Canada been doing? Well, the Bank of Canada during the pandemic has been printing new dollars by largely purchasing government of Canada debt. And every time that the Bank of Canada prints up new dollars, the dollars in our paychecks, the dollars in our savings account, buy less and less.
0: So Here's, he's, and, and maybe I'm just being too pragmatic here, Franco, but let me run this by you and get, get, get your your ideas on this. We know already for the track record, because it's almost uh, two years now that we've been dealing with pandemics and various waves and forms here. We know the impact it's had on the economy. Uh, we also know that, uh, you know, we were told a, so, a year or so ago that, you know, once this thing starts rolling again, we've got all this money that we haven't been spending, and, and we, the consumers, are going to help to boost this economy. We're going to get back on our feet. Well, that's not happening. Uh, for a whole lot of reasons, inflation being one of them, uh, a lot of people aren't going back to work uh, they're not getting the wages they want. There's a whole number of factors there. I didn't hear anything about that but about that yesterday. In other words, when you are isn't it a government's role to identify a problem and then offer a solution to that problem?
2: <laughs> well, the government knows that inflation is a problem <laughs> right it's it, it's so obvious. I mean the politicians they they don't want to address it because then they would actually have to make some very tough decisions. Right. And it's largely they're doing because you've seen this unprecedented level of government spending. You've seen this massive level of government borrowing and you've seen even carbon tax hikes going up during the middle of the pandemic. So these politicians, by their own actions, are, are really driving the increasing cost of living. And we've also seen a major disconnect between. The people, us, me, you, and your audience, and the people who are supposed to be our representatives in Ottawa, right? During this whole pandemic, we've seen so many in the private sector lose their jobs, take a pay cut, lose their small business. But in Ottawa, all members of Parliament have been receiving not one, but two pay raises during the pandemic. So it's very difficult for them to make decisions based on what the rest of us are feeling when they're completely detached from the reality that we're all living in.
0: and and therein lies the frustration and and maybe even more important than frustration is uncertainty and and i know you guys have talked about this in the past when you've been on the program when there's uncertainty and especially with us the buying public uh that that's that's a a huge factor in slowing down economic growth because we don't want to spend our money we're trying to hang on to it Uh, we're not going to make large purchases because we're not sure what's going to be happening uh down the road Uh, you're looking for for some leadership here to simply say look at we can steer our way through this and, you know, and I, I just mentioned, first of all, about, you know, the slow recovery. And then where's the plan for that? Uh, we know that there are supply chain problems right now. Some of those beyond their control. I mean, the, you know, the flooding in British Columbia, of course, has been a factor. But there's some things that governments can do. Uh, about this so you know about alleviating some of the pressure at the ports in 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 British Columbia and about containers Uh, we don't we don't even have enough truck drivers now to get goods to market I mean these are all things that you want governments to address and I understand that you know usually a fiscal update like this is just broad strokes you you want to see some specific policies but (laughs) we've been waiting for a couple of years now.
2: Well that's absolutely right And there's so much to unpack there. Um, Now you mentioned uncertainty well one of the One of the biggest uncertainties uh, that we see is around interest costs, interest rates, right? Well, the fiscal update lays a plan for 2021 to 2027. Now, during that time, Canadian taxpayers are going to lose out on nearly $200 billion dollars just in debt interest costs, nearly $200 billion uh, by 2027. Now, that's that's $200 billion that can't go to hire more nurses, $200 billion that, that can't fix in- infrastructure, that can't stay in our pockets because it's going to the bond fund managers. But here's the thing. W- what if interest costs go up? If interest, if the interest rate goes up by just one point, the annual deficit balloons by about five billion dollars. So this is a huge issue. Um, Another another thing that we have to remember is, well, what if we stumble into another downturn that's not related to the pandemic? What happens to the deficit? What happens to the debt um, at at that time? And, and, And really, that's why it's so important for politicians to control what you can control. Uh, and in this case, it's it's spending. But we haven't seen that from this government. We haven't seen a real concrete plan um, to get inflation under control and to get the massive government borrowing under control.
0: And, and I understand the argument. Uh, you know, God knows we've had enough economists on here to try to explain this to us. Inflation is not a, a, just a Canadian problem; it's it's a global problem. It's happening all over the place right now, uh, and I don't think anybody anticipated that happening. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the, the government of the day in whatever country we're talking about, and let's talk about Canada, so that's where we live, uh, can do something about this. I mean, they're not going to er- eradicate uh, the, the problem, but they can mitigate the impact that it's having on us right now. And I think that's what we're looking for, isn't it?
2: Well, it is. Um, but but you know what? Yes, there are many factors outside of the, uh, of a Canadian government's control, but let's not let these politicians off the hook. They have absolutely played a role in driving inflation here in Canada. And let me explain. You know, I've talked about the the, the, the printing press, the Bank of Canada, right, which really falls under the jurisdiction of the federal government. Well, during this pandemic, the central bank has printed three hundred and seventy billion dollars, which is essentially new money. Um, and, and that's a growth in the Bank of Canada's assets by 300 percent. And that's significantly more than what we saw during the recessions of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, even the 08 09 recession. Um, and, and it actually mirrors what happened during this the entire six years of world war ii and as i said the bank of canada is is largely buying up government of canada debt so the borrowing from the federal government directly relates to the inflation that we're feeling and and even just on a more basic level we've seen the carbon tax go up twice during the pandemic Um, and in canada taxes make up about 31 to 42 percent of the pump price so certainly there's ways for politicians here in Canada to provide a little bit more relief.
0: What's going to happen with interest rates? I, I know there was a, 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 a little passing mention to this yesterday, but and it's 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 this, it's like a tennis ball going back and forth across the net here. I mean, we, you know, Economics 101 uh, says that, OK, because of what was going on in the recession caused by the pandemic, uh, the Bank of Canada said, don't worry during the recovery, we're not going to touch interest rates. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Now, all of a sudden, they're seeing inflation go up. And Economics 101 now says, well, you know what? When you see inflation like that, you pretty much have to raise interest rates. And the Bank of Canada has hinted that they want to. uh, They just don't think this is the right time. That's only going to fuel this uncertainty that we just talked about, isn't it?
2: Yes, I completely agree, and you know the federal government has really gotten itself between a rock and a hard place because of years of overspending, because of years of easy money. We see the government, we see so many Canadian households are 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 just in so much debt, right? So raising of interest rates um, would certainly would certainly hurt government budgets and would certainly hurt so many Canadian families and Canadian businesses. Um, but on the other hand, we also have to make some tough choices right? You can't have everything in life. You do have to make choices. And we've completely seen a lack of that understanding from our politicians. Well, they probably understand it. I think they just don't want to take um, and make any tough decisions. But we have to look back to our history. Um, And it wasn't that long ago when we all felt some very tough decisions made by governments. Remember back in the 80s, we saw these big spending politicians continue to kick the can, the deficit can down the road. And what happened in the 90s? Well in the 90s you had politicians of all political stripes and at different levels they were forced to make tough decisions. In Saskatchewan for example in the 90s they had to close 50 hospitals across the prairie province. And and, and I think we sh- we need to learn from that and the and the and the lesson is that if you don't make some tough choices now you're going to have tougher choices that are forced on you.
0: Well, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we, you know, we're supposed to be learning from history here. And those of us that lived through those times can certainly attest to to what went on there. I mean, you know, Paul Martin as a finance minister. Tackled this, wrestled it down uh, because of the debt problems. I, and, and he was not a popular guy in Ottawa. He wasn't a popular guy in, in provincial capitals either because he simply said, we're turning off the tap on an awful lot of these things. Uh, and and it's, it is tough to, to swallow something like that. But at the same time, we have to understand the ramifications of not doing it. And, and uh, we're not there yet. We, it, the, the guess the thing here is that we all understand, I think, fiscal policy. We all understand common sense when it comes to how we should spend our money. Uh, but if you were running your household the way the government's running their government, uh, or I was, uh, we'd we'd be in deep, deep trouble at this point. You know, we seem to be living for the moment, not living for you know what might be happening next week, and that that's dangerous.
2: Yeah, no kidding. And the problem is, is that <laughs> politicians, if they really want to address the issue that we're facing here when it comes to the the, the national finances, right? More than a trillion dollars in debt federally already. They're going to have to go against their own financial interests. Let's just call a spade a spade here uh, because, like I said, all members of Parliament have received two pay raises during the pandemic. You would think that the first place to, to, to show Canadians that you understand what they're going through, to find a little bit of savings in the budget, to lead by example, you would think it should be a no-brainer to, to – at least not raise your own pay during the middle of the pandemic, right? In New Zealand, we saw them almost immediately. The prime minister there, the ministers there, even the top bureaucrats, they came together, they took a 20% pay cut to show solidarity with the struggling taxpayers who are paying the bills. And what do we get in Canada? We get the opposite, where they keep gobbling up pay raise after pay raise. Um, So for the politicians to actually get a handle on these finances, Quite frankly, they're going to have to be willing to go against their own financial interests. They're going to have to be willing to go against the interest of the hundreds of thousands of government bureaucrats in Ottawa. And they're going to have to be willing to stand up to business lobby groups and say enough is enough. We're not handing out any more corporate welfare.
0: Well, we had this discussion in 08, 09, didn't we, as we were, you know, suffering through that recession and then trying to come out of it. And uh, we learned an awful lot about what went on in Ottawa, didn't we? You know, because of of some great investigative journalism and folks uh, that were basically looking under the rocks. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, they got pay raises during that recession. Uh, We also found out that their pension plan, I I don't want to get you started on that. We could be here all day, Frank, (laughs) talking about the pension plan, Uh, but it's guaranteed. Uh, even though there was a dip and, and a recession and, and, you know, we're all in economic straits, they still were made whole with their pension plan. And then got was your money and my money that was doing that. Well, that's still in play. They're still doing that. Uh, but every time somebody brings it up, uh, you know, you guys, unless you're a press release, we'll talk about it on a show like this. They simply say, look, it. don't worry about it. We got this covered. It's, well, no, we are worried about it because it's our money too. And, and you're right. There's gotta be a, a discussion here about, okay, uh, you know. You're up in Ottawa right now. You don't seem to understand what we're going through. And and that's a very frustrating exercise when you just think that, you know, that, uh, the, the house up on the hill there in Ottawa uh, is looking down upon us and having no concept at all about how this is impacting our everyday lives.
2: It pains me to say this because I, I don't like to look at the world through this, but there really has been a bit of a divide. Right. During the pandemic, those who are behind the cushy golden gates of government and, and those in the private sector, worker, business owners. I mean, more than three hundred and twelve thousand federal government bureaucrats received a pay raise during the pandemic. So um, we, we, we just need some politicians. We need the government to understand that enough is enough. So many people have struggled during the pandemic and we need them to do what everyone else has done, tighten their belts and employ a little bit of common sense.
0: Well, we'll see. The debate begins. And uh, of course, in a couple of days, they're going away for the Christmas break anyway. So I guess not much is going to happen in the short term anyway. Uh, Franco, a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, thank you for having me on. Take care. Franco Terrazano, who is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and uh, clearly, as uh, are many other people, uh, not very impressed with uh, wh- the direction in which we're going uh, with the fiscal update. But that's uh, going to be debated in Ottawa, you can bet, over the next couple of days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about what the governments are planning on. We already know about the concern about uh, uh, COVID-19 and the latest variants that's causing a great deal of concern. Uh, you had the, the good doctor, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, yesterday on the suggesting that uh, this is this is growing at a pace that they just did not anticipate. They knew it was going to be kind of rough, but it's, it's really becoming problematic. And uh, the Prime Minister had a, a call yesterday with the premiers about just how they're going to handle this. Uh, and, well, there's a concern here about travel. Uh, Justin Trudeau, of course, consulted with the premiers about additional border restrictions and travel measures that could slow the spread of COVID-19 and the newest variant. Karen Rebo has some details for us.
1: In a call late last night, the First Ministers discussed the Omicron variant, which is quickly spreading around the world and in Canada. In fact, it's already making up 30% of Ontario's new daily infections. In a readout of the call, the Prime Minister's office says the leaders noted the potential for a rapid and strong resurgence of COVID cases in this country that could put a strain on health care systems. Trudeau and the premiers agreed the key to moving beyond the pandemic is to ensure that as many Canadians as possible get vaccinated and boosted. There were no details on whether the government plans to change any travel restrictions at this time. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press.
0: Those rumors about travel restrictions continue uh, from Ottawa today. Uh, most of the major news networks are uh, quoting, well, unnamed sources at this stage that says uh, it's coming. Uh, we know that the premier is going to make an announcement later on today uh, about. They say the booster program, but I'm, I'm sure there are going to be questions about travel as well. I want to bring Justin Ling into the conversation. Justin, of course, is a freelance investigative journalist. You've seen his work in the Globe and Mail and Macleans, among other uh, publications. Uh, great to have you back in the program, Justin. Thanks for the time today. Hey, good morning. Let me ask you, we know that they they had this discussion last night. You know that they're going to have some discussion about travel restrictions. Uh, We know that, of course, when we first heard about this new variant, uh, one of the first things Canada did was restricted travel from African nations, and and we may see variations on that. They had to kind of let that go a little bit because of some of the pushback they got. Uh, But on the other side of the coin, we're hearing, as of this morning, the UK is actually easing travel restrictions. Is there even a, a, a body of work right now to suggests that doing this sort of thing and, tr- and restricting international travel is is an effective tool in trying to control this variant?
3: No, we, we know it's not going to. I mean, it, it, it's been patently obvious um, for quite some time now that these travel restrictions, generally speaking, don't work. Um, you know, Where travel bans, where travel measures, where quarantines uh, really come into play is when you're trying to avert uh, you know a novel virus or a novel variant that hasn't reached your shores yet. We know you know from, from, from surveillance over the last two weeks um, that we were too late in imposing travel bans. Um, the travel bans we imposed it didn't catch many of the countries that were seeing significant outbreaks as we were trying to restrict travel from uh, South Africa which had a significant number of cases, and Egypt which had zero cases, uh, we were already seeing massive outbreaks in the Netherlands, uh and denmark so we were already behind the ball we imported cases already when we imported cases we didn't catch them until after uh people fell ill and were contagious and caused outbreaks we've seen significant outbreaks in ontario nova scotia british columbia um, the ship has sailed here in terms of travel restrictions uh, i can tell you that uh, on the call last night uh, the Prime Minister uh, suggested uh, about four or five different measures, including reimposing a 14-day quarantine on everybody arriving into the country from uh, countries other than the United States. Uh, he suggested uh, basically a ban on non-citizens uh, or non-permanent residents uh, entering the country. That is, There's going to be some flexibility there, we think. And a plan to basically ratchet up testing uh, to the point where every single traveller Uh, again with the exception of the u.s uh, is tested for COVID 19 when they arrive and may have to quarantine until some of their tests come back so you know all those measures would be fine and good if we had done them two weeks ago Uh, at this point the the ship has long since sailed. we should be focusing our efforts inward to actually stopping outbreaks that are
0: happening here uh, and and monitoring cases where they do happen Uh, but each one of the things you talked about that the prime minister brought up is as potential uh changes have all been tried and and proved ineffective in the past, though. And yet, we, no. It's what, what's you know the old adage. You know the definition of insanity. Doing, doing the same thing time and time again, expecting a different result. Why would why would they expect a different result this time?
3: Because I'll tell you exactly why. Because the government doesn't want to be caught being incompetent. To be t- to be totally blunt with you, right? Uh, I can tell you, I've seen uh, and spoken. I've seen some some measures proposed in recent days inside the government of Canada. I've spoken to a number of people. Uh, who are in these conversations. And the simple reality is that the government of Canada wants to ratchet up testing in airports to 100%. Every single traveler should get a COVID-19 test. Uh, again, maybe with the exception of the U.S. Uh, what I can tell you is that the government of Canada can't do that, at least not in time for the holiday rush. Uh, there were estimates prepared inside the government of Canada that basically said uh, you could be looking at more than 100 hours of delays at Pearson Airport alone, and it will cause pandemonium. You'll be unable to do social distancing inside Canada's airports because of this testing requirement. We don't have the staff, we don't have the test, we don't have the the, the infrastructure to suddenly ratchet up testing uh, this quickly, this fast for everyone who's arriving in the country. Given that, the government's solution was, let's reduce travel. Let's ban people from the country because we don't have the capacity to test enough people. So When you actually look at things that way, you realize that these measures are not designed to actually reduce importation of the variant. They're designed to cover up the fact the government can't test enough people. Because despite the insistence from the federal government, much like the provinces, that they have built the testing infrastructure they know is desperately needed, we know they have not. They failed to do so, and now they're being caught with their pants down. So their solution is, let's try banning some people.
0: So the the unstated topic of every one of these meetings behind closed doors, or whether it's Zoom or not, is, well, we've got to do something. I mean, that, that seems to be the attitude. Well, I
3: can tell you that the premiers, at least based on one source I spoke to, were not happy listening to the prime minister last night. Um, the, 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 re- the reaction was, you know, this stuff is not going to work. What are we doing? Um, you know, the, the reaction from at least one premier, I'm told, is that uh, they should be focusing on boosters, not... Not these travel restrictions. We know a third dose of 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 the COVID, sorry, of the Pfizer and Moderna uh, COVID vaccines are incredibly effective at preventing infection uh, and, and, and more importantly, preventing serious illness from this new variant. Yet the government of Canada has been sort of lax in actually suggesting uh, the provinces speed up their booster campaign. So it's really frustrating to watch this happen. The government of Canada is not sort of elucidating any of these rationales or any of these policies publicly. They're sort of frantically fretting behind closed doors to make it look like they're doing something. Um, But the reality is they're about to probably, unless they abandon some of these ideas, they're about to unveil a bunch of policies that are designed to make it look like they're doing a lot that will cause massive hardships that will do very little to protect anyone from this variant. And what's more, we don't even know if this variant is actually more severe than previous iterations of COVID-19. All the data we have thus far suggests it presents far more mildly and causes hospitalization significantly lower than the Delta variant. So all of this is being done really to, to make the appearance that, that, that they're doing enough when in fact they have been asleep at the, at the wheel for, for months.
0: Uh, just as you and I are speaking, uh, Jason Kenny is announcing uh, in Alberta that they are expanding rapid testing program. People are going to be able to pick up free testing kits starting this Friday. So, so I guess he's buying into what they're talking about here. Uh, Doug Ford, we're told later on this afternoon, is going to talk about the booster program. Uh, which seems to make a lot more sense, doesn't it, Justin? I mean, you know, we're not at ninety-five percent or whatever we we wanted to be for you know when it comes to t- everybody being fully vaccinated, but we're doing pretty well, especially compared to well, you mentioned South Africa a few minutes ago. I think their overall vaccination rate is like twenty-three percent or something. So, why not take advantage of the fact that most of us are double vaxxed and, and say, look at everybody, you got to get the booster, you got to get it this month. You know, absolutely. forget about this age stuff. Just get in line and get the damn booster. It's it's not, you know, bulletproof, but it's going to go a long way towards stopping the spread of this or at least mitigating the spread, wouldn't it?
3: Well, absolutely. I mean, we we actually know from some preliminary data from the UK and South Africa that two doses of a Moderna or Pfizer vaccine is actually, even if it's done five, six months ago, it's still relatively effective at protecting you against Omicron. Um, there's about a thirty percent chance you're going to avert uh, a symptomatic infection altogether, and about a, and even if you get infected uh, with symptoms, about a sixty to seventy percent chance you'll avert uh, serious you'll avert serious outcomes or complications. Now, a third dose wraps that up significantly. You have a significant protection against infection and even more significant protection against uh, a symptomatic or serious illness. Um, So we should absolutely be putting the pedal to the metal in terms of that uh, booster campaign. But testing is also so critically important here. In most of the country, you cannot get an asymptomatic COVID-19 test. In most of the country, rapid tests are still scarce hard to find, and in some cases, wildly expensive. The federal government would do better actually dispatching that testing capacity. It's trying to scale up at its airports to just the sidewalks on main streets across the country. People who come into this country have already been tested. They've already gotten a PCR COVID-19 test. We're testing them second, sometimes a third time to just double, double check. But The the COVID-19 they're bringing into the country is no different than the COVID-19 we have here. We're putting too much resources in testing travelers and not nearly enough resources in testing people who are already here who are causing super spreader events. We have completely lost the plot on this. The federal government does not want to step on anyone's toes and the provinces don't want to be told what to do. And because of this bizarre commitment to federalism... We are going to see significantly worse outcomes. We're going to penalize a bunch of people for no real purpose who don't live here or are not from here. We're going to ruin a lot of Christmases, and we're not going to do a good job of actually containing or tracking the spread of this new variant because the premiers and the prime minister cannot get their act together.
0: It's a turf war, though, isn't it? I mean, you and I have talked about this really? before. I mean, and th- at this time, it's COVID. I mean, it could be something else. It could be it could be you know trade tariffs that are existing between provinces. Uh, everybody's carved out their own little territory. You know, we, we're here in Ontario and out in BC. They've got their own mindset as well. This is this is a classic example of of something that's been a problem in this country for quite some time. Is is you get the attitude sometimes that you know we we're eleven little countries. We're not one united country when it comes to trying to decide on policy here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the federal government right now is sitting on 8 million doses of vaccines, um, and, and, and at least some level of a stockpile of rapid tests. Um, if the provinces can't give those out, why won't the federal government? If the provinces are dragging their heels, maybe the federal government should step up. Maybe the federal government ought to tell the provinces that there needs to be consistency in testing and booster dosage right across the country because consistency breeds simplicity, breeds clarity, and we are desperately lacking in all three of those things right now. Um, Nova Scotia is is doing a fantastic job. You know, there is pop-up testing clinics everywhere. Uh, there are relatively uh, short lines to go get a PCR test. There is a relatively uh, you know, low uh, wait time. There are uh, rapid tests being handed out from community centers and libraries straight across the province. It is sort of you know, not perfect by any measure, but the gold standard in this country in terms of testing access. Meanwhile, in Quebec right now, you're looking at a 48 to 72-hour wait for your PCR test. Rapid tests won't arrive until next Monday. Uh, In British Columbia, you cannot even get a COVID-19 test, even if you are close contact of someone who's tested positive. You need to be symptomatic. This is an absolutely bizarre policy. We know that a significant number of COVID-19 cases, especially a huge proportion of Omicron variant cases, are asymptomatic. Why we are not testing randomly, mass testing is absolutely beyond me provinces are all too happy to have the federal government do a bunch of useless border measures because it makes it look like the government is doing something even as they're totally failing to do one of the most useful things two of the most useful things giving out vaccines and conducting tests
0: i i'm getting a little skeptical believe in the vaccine i'm eligible by the way for the booster as of this week uh i've gone to two different pharmacies right now and say yeah well we don't have any Wait a minute, I thought there there was an abundance of this stuff. Yeah, we were expecting a shipment in. It hasn't come in. It was supposed to come Thursday. It didn't come in. in These guys are going to get their act together. I'm not talking about the pharmacies. I'm talking about the governments themselves to simply say this stuff has got to be available. Same thing with testing. Uh, I know people that say, look, this idea about the testing makes all kinds of sense, but I'm not paying for it. Uh, yeah. You know, th- th- it's an attitudinal thing right now. The government's got to step up if, if they want us to believe about the severity of this and and the, what this variant's going to do or could do, then they've got to be serious about messaging. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I have to go uh, get a, a seventy dollar rapid
3: test for myself this afternoon uh, to, after being in close contact with somebody. Uh, obviously, I feel fine, no fever or anything. But it's it's absurd. You know, if we really truly treated this like the crisis it is, there would be, you know, pop-up testing uh, tents on every other sidewalk. You you go to many U.S. cities or states, and you will see pop-up clinics everywhere. Some of them are private, you have to pay for, some of them are run by the city or the state, and they're free. They offer rapid tests, they offer PCR tests, they offer a rapid PCR test. They offer a variety of options. There are tests available in pharmacies, in two, five, ten, twenty-five packs, Why is that not happening here? Why has that not been our policy for the past year? We have heard premiers of every single province tell us ad nauseum that they are scaling up and expanding testing capacity and infrastructure. They lied to us. We're conducting fewer tests today than we were at the end of 2020. Why have we not kept up pressure on these premiers? Why have these premiers not been forced to actually answer for the fact that they did not do their job, that they lied to us, and that they have left us woefully unprepared for the wave that we always knew was coming?
0: Exactly. Uh, we got to leave it there. We're just about out of time on this one. I re- really appreciate you jumping in on this. We'll see what the premiers got to say about this later on today and uh, more to come on this. Thanks again, Justin. Thanks.